This is Lilac Wine, the podcast. I am releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time. So if you haven't heard the previous episodes, please take a listen. I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, Lilac wine. Chapter 8 The sky to the east was just beginning to lighten as the first of the artillery exploded overhead. As the shells found their marks, blasts revealed the silhouetted ruins of a small village in the distance, except for a lonely chimney standing defiantly against the barrage. Rubble and fallen walls were all that remained, nothing but piles of brick and branchless trees. The men were packed tightly in crudely dug trenches, not more than three feet deep. Several hundred yards of wheat, pocketed here and there by large blackened craters, lay between them and the decimated village. In the darkness, disrupted by sporadic flashes of light, those craters looked deep and endless, like mouths waiting to swallow up the unsuspecting. Some men looked up to the sky, struggling vainly to discern the stars that tried to shine beyond the smoke that drifted overhead. Some curled face down in the dirt, clutching their rifles tightly to their chests. Others, with eyes closed, repeated prayers over and over. Each man contemplated what was to occur in his own way. Most thought about home, though, of loved ones they hoped to see once again. The artillery was answered with thunderous replies from the other side. Chunks of earth hurled through the air with each explosion, sending dirt and rock upon the helmets of those who sat in the trembling ground awaiting their orders. The pebbles striking the metal of the helmets were not unlike the sounds of hailstones pelting a roof during a heavy storm. The back-and-forth exchange continued for some time. The explosions were deafening. Screams would occasionally punctuate a burst. Men cupped their ears with their palms, not knowing if one of the whistles was going to bring instant death from the sky. That was the worst of it. Not knowing where the shells were going to fall, and knowing full well that there was nothing that could be done. The sun gradually peaked over the horizon and the men were told to get ready. An officer's whistle cut through the clamor as the detonations faded and a momentary silence fell over the land. Although the artillery was now quiet, the explosions lingered in the ears of every man who now stood from his position and stepped up over the edge of the trench. 
Their bayonets caught the rising sun as they slowly walked forward through the wheat, the equipment in their backpacks gently clanging with each step. Suddenly, a deep rumbling sound came from both sides of the line. Large tanks rolled out of the woods. Like mechanized haystacks, the tanks led the men across the field, opening fire on the helpless village. Machine guns started to clatter overhead, providing cover for the soldiers while they ascended to the ruins. As they approached, men walked out of the rubble with arms held in the air. They were quickly apprehended by the soldiers and told with the barrels of their rifles to lie on the ground. Here and there, soldiers of a different sort followed, closely behind the tanks. They wore dark blue overcoats, the tips of their weapons glowing with flame. Their eyes searched the rubble for shadowed holes and remnants of cellars that once held fine French wine and wintered grain preserved from the last harvest, but were now home to enemy soldiers. Rouse mit ihm! screamed one into a cellar just before pulling the trigger. Orange jets of flame shot from the tip, roaring like a waterfall. The air shimmered in the heat as rock and brick caught fire. Screams peaked for a moment from within the bowels of the darkness, and then were silent. Another roar and a man engulfed in flames stumbled from a foxhole, staggering over the debris, screaming in terror. He tripped over the remains of a wall and fell, motionless, among the bricks and charred timber, smoldering quietly, like so much in the village. A second wave followed closely behind as more troops poured into the area. The air smelled of gunpowder and smoke, burning hair and flesh. A group of five men made it to the center of the village, encountering crudely laid barbed wire entanglements. Come on, flower, one of the men said to a soldier who was straggling behind. You're slowing us down. The men scanned the area, noting the wire, the ditches, and the clumps of trees out in the distance. Behind them were the cracks of rifles and the occasional whoosh of the flamethrowers. That was easy, a soldier said. Just as a group of Germans stood from a ditch with their arms raised in the air, there were four of them. Comrades! Comrades! They yelled. The doughboys responded with the rifles. Each shot was punctuated by the thud of the bodies hitting the ground. The soldiers pulled the bolts back on their weapons almost simultaneously and reloaded. That's the way the 28th does it, one of them said. With that, he turned his rifle to the wounded German at his feet, who was clutching his chest, dark red oozing over his fingers. With the bayonet pointed at the wounded man's neck, he thrust downward quickly, piercing the throat of the unfortunate soldier. His body violently thrashed for a moment or two as the doughboy pushed harder until the point of the bayonet entered the soft earth. A long rush of air escaped from the soldier's mouth, and he was gone, his eyes staring to the sky. Goddamn Bosch, the soldier stated as he placed his foot on the dead man's chest and pulled up his rifle. That'll teach him. The other soldiers laughed, more from nervousness than humor, as each of them knew that it wouldn't be long before the Germans launched a retaliatory attack. Hey, Flower, he said to the lone soldier who stood behind the men. Did you even fire your weapon? 
He bent down and casually wiped his bayonet on the regimental of the German at his feet. Hey, Les, leave him alone, all right? What? I'm just asking, that's all. The man in the rear rocked ever so subtly back and forth. The nozzle of his rifle pointed towards the ground. So, did you shoot at any Bosch yet? Before he could answer, the sky lit up. Whistling shells rained down on the men as the Germans launched an artillery barrage of their own. The men dove to the ground. Get your asses down, someone yelled. One of the men turned, apparently to jump into a nearby ditch. The weight of the equipment slowing his motion. A shell exploded at his feet, sending bits and pieces of his body in all directions. Blood and tissue spattered the remaining men as they buried their faces into the cold earth. Robert awoke abruptly, a sharp throbbing in his temple. The car shook, and a whirring noise came from under the carriage. Still groggy and disconcerted from the dream, he looked out the window. The train was beginning to make its way across the Mississippi. Next stop, Dubuque! said the conductor at the front of the car. Outside, steel beams blurred by and Robert could see barges and a steamship in the water. The black smoke coming up from the ships reminded him of the dream, which, like all of his dreams of such nature, were difficult to put out of his mind. He didn't know what to make of it. Last year, he had a dream about the war. He saw a devastated landscape, charred and battle-pocked. Nothing alive, no Grass, no trees, no flowers. Smoke from the tons of armaments drifted across the barren land. Then he saw thousands upon thousands of troops stepping from the trenches and walking calmly across that worthless field. They held their weapons out in front of them. Some joked that the Hun was too scared to make an appearance that day. Robert then knew that they were British, they walked through the destruction confidently. Then, the unthinkable. Machine guns, bombs. The Germans had not been scared. They had simply turned to the spaces deep within their bunkers and waited out the bombardment. Now that the British troops had made it halfway across no man's land, they jumped to their machine gun nests and opened up with everything they had. Men fell not by the dozens, not by the thousands, but by the tens of thousands. Robert scanned the Chicago Tribune on a daily basis after the dream to see if he could place the event. It was several weeks later when a headline caught his eye. British Break Foe's Line from July 2, 1916. The battle was along the Somme River, about 60 miles north of Paris. This was a massive offensive launched by the British and the French, but the description in the paper did not quite match what he had seen. The next day, German second line broken. Perhaps his dream had been wrong. There was a sense of relief for him after reading the article and thinking that the dream may have been just that, a dream. The daily reports from the front were varied and often contradictory, and Robert had a difficult time discerning what was actually happening. July 5th, British move slowly. July 6th, British are checked. July 7th, 
British troops charge in face of certain death. July 19th, Germans open fierce attack on the British. By July 30th, it was estimated that this battle had already cost over 300,000 lives. For what? Five miles, maybe? And there was no end in sight. By November, articles about the Battle of the Somme disappeared from the paper. It was as if it had never happened. This time, the soldiers in his dream were American, that was for sure, but Americans had not yet made a showing on the battlefields of France and Belgium. He would have to read the papers again to see if he could place his dream. With a loud hiss, the train came to a stop at the Illinois Central Passenger Depot in Dubuque. Robert gathered his belongings and left the train to pick up his suitcase and catch another line. So that was chapter eight of Lilac Wine. Hope you enjoyed it. It's a relatively short chapter. I don't sit and decide how long my chapters are going to be. They just kind of go until they until they don't. Now, uh, that was our real first look at World War One. There's going to be a lot more coming, and these dreams that Robert has are going to get more and more detailed. Now, that dream was modeled after the Battle of Cantini. Now, originally, when I sat down to write this, the Battle of Cantini was going to play a big role in it. That has since changed. So when I do a rewrite, I think I'm going to have to change some of the details of that dream. Battle of Cantini was the first real battle that American troops were involved in. It happened on May 28th, 19. 18 and involved the 1st Army Division, also known as the Big Red One. I did a lot of research on the battle at Cantini Park in Wheaton, Illinois. Now, Cantini Park is the former estate of Colonel Robert McCormick, who was part of the 1st Division. He was in World War I. He was also the publisher of the Chicago Tribune. Today, his house is opened up, his mansion, you could tour it, and his estate grounds are the home of the uh, First Division Museum. And so they have an archive there, too, so I was able to go to the archive. I, I read diaries. I looked at pictures. It was pretty cool. And they've got tanks. They have a tank park. So my boys used to love going there to climb all over the tanks. And the First Division Museum is really awesome. It takes you through a history of the First Division from World War I to the present. And when you walk through the museum, you walk through a reconstructed trench and you go into these bunkers. And then there's this area showing what happened between the wars. You go to muster for the Second World War. And then you're there on the D-Day beaches. 
It's a reconstructed beach. You know, they have the obstacles and it's really well worth it. If you are in the Chicago area ever, make sure to go to Cantini, especially if you like war history. You can find out more and their website, cantini.org. So as we enter this phase of the novel, we're going to be spending more time in Lily Springs. About a third now of the novel will take place in Lily Springs before the action moves back to Chicago. So I had to do some research about the train line going into Dubuque and figure out where Lily Springs is. In our next chapter, we're going to be getting a little history of this fictional town and where it is located along the Mississippi River. So that'll be next time as Robert enters this new world, Uh, (laughs) something that is very strange for somebody coming from the city, this eccentric little town of Lily Springs. So until next time, Thank you for listening. Go to lilacwinenovel.com to make comments, to ask questions about the writing. If you are liking this podcast, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes and write a review. That would be awesome. Greatly appreciated. Thank you again for listening. I will see you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>